Hello, my name's Tom Hughes. I'm here on behalf of Practical Neurology to interview Dr. Anu Jacob, consultant neurologist in the Walton Hospital, and Dr. Dan Whittam, clinical fellow in neuroimmunology in the Walton Hospital, about their recent article in Practical Neurology entitled Rituximab in Neurological Disease, Principles, Evidence and Practice. Dr. Jacob, how are you today? Very well. Thank you, Tom, for having us on this. Thank you. And Dr. Whittam, how are you? Hi, very well, thank you. Would you be willing to start with explaining exactly what is rituximab and its mode of action? I think it'll be useful just to understand the history of rituximab a little bit. Uh, IDEC Pharmaceuticals developed this way back in, uh, in the early 90s uh, in San Diego. And their primary intention was to use it as a targeted molecule, a monoclonal antibody uh, in uh, lymphoma. And they were successful in that. It went on to clinical trials. Um, and gradually, um, people started experimenting with rituximab in autoimmune conditions. Um, examples include uh, uh, cases of myasthenia, autoimmune ITP, uh, hemolytic anemias. And then it dawned that it could be uh, an excellent drug for a variety of autoimmune conditions. And then trials in uh, rheumatoid arthritis began. And it went on to trials uh, to work in, in NMO and subsequently MS. And now it's become kind of a, um, a panacea for a variety of um, neurological uh, autoimmune diseases, particularly those mediated by antibodies. So answering your question, it is a monoclonal antibody um, that depletes the B cells by binding to uh, CD20, which is a, a cell's membrane protein on the, uh, the B cells. And um, it seems to be something that is used for a number of conditions, but the evidence so far is not drawn from randomized controlled trials. Is that true? That is mostly true. You've had randomized controlled trials in a few conditions um, in, in neurology, um, including multiple sclerosis that are phase two trials, uh, uh, vasculitis, ANCA-associated vasculitis. But there have been prospective studies and retrospective studies in a variety of other conditions. Uh, autoimmune conditions in neurology aren't that common. Therefore, um, doing a randomized control study um, is quite difficult, uh, especially when a drug is coming out of patent. Currently, in which disorders, or put another way, in what conditions is the best evidence available for the use of rituximab? The approved indications is um, only really um, anchor vasculitis. Uh, that is the only one that's been um, licensed. The other, other studies uh, are phase two studies, um, and that includes MS. Um, it is not, not a fault of the drug, I would think. It's a lack of will um, and a lack of a, uh, economic reason for industry to pursue it that has led to a rather premature termination of, of uh, further trials uh, uh, with this drug. In terms of the um, workup that is required before you consider using rituximab, could you give us some guidance about the sorts of investigations that are required 
to ensure that the use of the drug is safe? The first major um, thing to consider when giving rituximab um, is it's important that it's not given to anyone with a with an active infection. Um, so a, a standard um, clinical assessment, um, including um, routine simple investigations if needed, um, such as full blood count, CRP, to exclude an, uh, an active infection um, are important. Um, in terms of more um, specialist tests, um, rituximab is, is rarely associated with uh, reactivation of um, previous hepatitis B infection. Um, and, and cases of reactivation have been serious and, and resulted in fatalities. So um, the one important specialist test to do before giving rituximab is, is to check hepatitis B serology. Um, and because there can be um, activation of past or occult infection, it's important to check both the surface antigen and core antibody and ensure that both of those are negative uh, before um, proceeding with the infusion. Um, if if uh, the patient has had previous hepatitis B, that's not a contraindication, um, but the patient must be referred to gastroenterology and start some viral prophylaxis, usually with drugs like lamivudine, um, before they start. Um, otherwise, um, in, in, in our experience, um, when we're using rituximab more for, for maintenance um, treatment in, in conditions like NMO, um, we do tend to do a little bit more detailed workup, check things like immunoglobulin levels, uh, hepatitis C serology, consider TB screening. Um, but when rituximab is given in a more emergency or acute setting, um, and there's a really a, a more of a priority to just get on and do it, um, it, it, it can generally be given without, without worrying about those things too much. Thank you very much indeed. And then when it comes to giving the medication, can you describe the common side effects and what we can do to try and predict or um, avoid these side effects? Particularly with uh, the first rituximab infusion, um, infusion reactions are relatively common. They affect about um, a third of patients receiving their first infusion. Um, in the, for the most part, these are, uh, are pretty mild reactions, things like headaches, uh, a sore, scratchy throat, changes in blood pressure. Um, but it's, it, there is some, some monitoring um, of the patient which is needed because of that. Um, and giving a dose of methylprednisolone prior to the infusion um, reduces the um, uh, prevalence of those reactions significantly. Um, with subsequent infusions, um, uh, reactions are much less common and really um, having to discontinue treatment altogether because of serious reactions is, is in the region of 1% or less. Um, as with, with all immunomodulatory drugs, um, there is a slightly increased risk of infection and in the majority of cases that's, that's milder upper respiratory tract infections or, or sinopulmonary infections. Um, but really in our experience, um, we find that rituximab is a relatively safe drug and, and compares pretty favorably with, with other immunosuppressive treatments that we use in neurology, such as, as mycophenolate and azathioprine. Could you just tell us a bit about uh, the risk of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy? It is a very low risk uh, in the tune of one in 30,000. 
Um, and the risk when it occurs is usually when patients have been pretreated with other drugs, um, the conventional immunosuppressants. So, um, for example, in the NMO setting, we would have treated patients with uh, microphenolidazathioprine for many years, along with steroids, and then we uh, may switch over to rituximab, and the combined um, carryover effects or uh, the, uh, may contribute to development. But again, it's it's a uh, the risk is much lower when compared to drugs like natalizumab, um, uh, where the risk is much higher. So this is not a particular concern that uh, for us in practice, and we don't really routinely do JC virus serology before starting rituximab. Thank you very much. And am I right in saying that you don't give any prophylactic antibiotics uh, when you give rituximab? Correct. So we have heard about biosimilars. Uh, some people have compared biosimilars to Theseus's ship or Trigger's broom, depending on your preference. Can you just talk us through what you mean by the term biosimilar and of what relevance is it to clinical neurologists? Um, biosimilars are um, drugs that are very almost identical, but not really, um, to monoclonal uh, antibodies. The bio indicates that these are Know, uh, biological molecules, unlike uh, know, chemical uh, molecules. We have biosimilars for a variety of epilepsy drugs, for example, and they're all identical because the formula is out there. But for biosimilars, because uh, the monoclonal antibodies are being produced by live cells, the, the product, the protein that is um, synthesized and released by these living cells are going to be different, um, uh, slightly different. And this therefore raises the question, will they act in the similar manner? Will the efficacy be the same? And will the side effects be the same? Uh, and will the immunogenicity be similar? Now, um, though the answer is in general, yes, there are probably going to be subtle differences. Uh, but because these are possibly subtle, um, the regulatory authorities have uh, very wisely decided that one needn't go through the extensive phase three trials um, required to market these drugs. Biosimilars simply have to show uh, efficacy in, in, in the lab largely um, and, uh, uh, and short, short studies, which is very good. The advantage of uh, biosimilars for us is really, while the efficacy remains largely similar, the cost uh, should be lower. At least that's what one, one hopes for. Um, Usually the patent for orphan drugs um, run about 15 to 20 years. And once that patent expires, other companies are able to manufacture biosimilars. Um, currently for, Ritux, uh, for the original product uh, for uh, rituximab was called MapTera. And now we have uh, two other biosimilars. One is called uh, Truxima and the other one is called Rixathon and they are uh, only 200 pounds cheaper um, than the original version, which is um, probably should be a lot lower really, but uh, probably with time it'll come down. In terms of uh, efficacy, they seem quite similar. In terms of side effects in practice, uh, again, there is no, literature is not, um, doesn't show any significant difference, but perhaps there is a, a slightly more uh, 
risk of uh, infusion reactions, but that's really anecdotal from our experience. There have been studies done and there is really no major difference uh, to my knowledge. Okay, could I now ask you about other methods of depleting B cell populations? Are there any other monoclonal antibodies that we need to be aware of or any other ways that B cell populations might be depleted? Yes, there are a, a variety of, um, of B cell depleting monoclonal antibodies. Um, so rituximab is really the, the first generation of, of B cell depleting um, monoclonal antibody therapies. Um, but the antibodies have been further refined and adapted um, to make them less immunogenic um, and more effective in B cell killing. Um, and that's what we refer to as second and third generation uh, monoclonal antibodies. Um, the, the one that um, is, is most um, relevant to neurologists at the moment is ocrelizumab, um, which is a second generation um, humanized uh, monoclonal antibody. So whereas rituximab is um, roughly 65% um, human antibody, um, ocrelizumab is over 90% human. Um, so uh, again, this uh, targets the CD20 protein on the surface of B cells. Um, it may be slightly more effective in B cell killing um, and slightly less immunogenic, um, but, but really a very similar um, uh, overall result in an effective depletion of B cells. And, and it's ocrelizumab, which has recently um, gone through successful phase three trials in both relapsing um, MS and, and primary progressive MS um, and has now been licensed. Um, there, are, um, there are other um, uh, B-cell depleting monoclonal antibodies um, which are currently in phase three trials um, in, in neurology. Uh, one is ofatumumab, um, which is a, a, another second generation but fully human um, monoclonal antibody and that can be given by subcutaneous injection um, and that's in a phase three trial in MS and um, there is a, a trial um, going on in, in neuromyelitis optica at the moment um, of inebilizumab um, uh, from Mediimmune um, which is a third generation B cell depleting therapy um, and the results of that are, are awaited soon. Now Getting down to some practical, more practical issues, what about the use of these drugs in pregnancy? Do you have any evidence about their safety profile? The SMPCs and the drug company trials have not included pregnant women. And experience with these drugs uh, will only come um, you know, several years down the lane when accidental usage uh, amongst pregnant women happens. Um, in our experience, it's a reasonably safe drug. Um, is there a biological basis for that? Yes. Rituximab does not cause the uh, placenta easily. It's a large molecule. Um, it has been used safely um, in uh, many situations. But as a, uh, as a practical uh, guide, it is safe to give it before one conceives, in the month before conception. Um, it is probably safe to give it uh, uh, till about 20 weeks, uh, and it is safe to give it uh, uh, immediately postpartum. The risk of uh, um, 
the, the molecule is secre secreted in breast milk for a few days. But beyond that, there is a little risk to the, um, to the newborn, um, largely because it is metabolized uh, in, in, the, in the gut. The molecule does um, can cause B cell depletion in the, uh, in the neonate. And uh, therefore, we have to make sure that vaccinations in the newborn um, are adequate. So the antibody levels may have to be measured. But again, overall, the consensus is that it's a reasonably safe drug. Um, and in situations where it has to be used, there's an absolute necessity to use it, one would go ahead and use it. I, I was just going to add really that um, because rituximab is an, an immunoglobulin, um, immunoglobulins don't, don't cross the placenta until after 20 weeks. Um, so, so that really seems to be the, the, the crucial threshold. And, and if you need to give rituximab before that time, probably it's relatively safe. Um, but after that time, um, uh, neonatal um, hypoglamoglobulinemia um, is a problem which is seen. To conclude, perhaps I could ask you about how we should manage symptomatic secondary antibody deficiency. So rituximab um, is directed against CD20. Um, and and the, the big appeal of that is that CD20 is, is expressed on the surface of the majority of immature B cells, um, but not, um, not mature plasma cells, which secrete the majority of our protective antibodies. Um, and, and, and that really is, is, is hope to preserve um, humoral immunity in, in the vast majority of patients. Um, even despite that, um, it, it's increasingly reported um, that patients on long-term rituximab um, can um, develop a secondary antibody deficiency. Um, so low levels of IgG, um, low levels of IgM. Um, that is not always a problem, um, but in some patients that can be associated with uh, recurrent um, infections, particularly recurrent sinus or recurrent chest infections. So we, um, we have come across this perhaps a little bit more than, um, than other people because of our experience in treating a lot of patients with uh, neuromyelitis optica um, who are on rituximab for, for, for many years. Um, particularly, it, it seems to be a problem if, if patients have had previous immunosuppressive therapies, um, which is very common in, in, in our patients as well. Um, so in patients who have been on rituximab um, for some time or um, have had previous treatments, um, we do check immunoglobulin levels from time to time, and particularly if patients are suffering with recurrent chest or sinus infections. Um, if antibody levels are low, so IgG is less than, um, the, uh, less than five, um, then um, you can further assess their immune function by looking at um, disease-specific antibody levels. Um, their antibodies titers against um, common pathogens like pneumococcus and haemophilus. Um, and you can do test vaccinations to get a more functional um, assessment of the, of the immune um, response. Um, if these things are impaired as well, then patients often benefit from referral to immunology um, for um, uh, vaccinations, prophylactic antibiotics, or in some cases, immunoglobulin replacement therapy. 
Um, and, and we've used those strategies successfully in NMO patients um, who've had to stay on long-term rituximab um, and, and that's given good symptomatic relief. Can I also um, add that much of the uh, risk of hypogamma globulinemia comes with a repeated um, six-monthly dosing um, of the drug, i.e. if you repeat uh, uh, the dosing of two grams every six months indefinitely, uh, a proportion of people will develop um, low immunoglobulin levels. So we have therefore now switched to a, a strategy where we monitor the B cells uh, reappearing in the peripheral circulation and uh, retreating only if it crosses a, a threshold or, of about 1%. And this, I think, is likely to reduce the risk of such complications. Um, and hopefully, um, the drug can be given for a very long period. Um, I have many patients who have been in it for more, more than 10 years and have done exceptionally well getting only one dose, sometimes once in 18 months or two years. That is one gram every 18 months, and they are off all other medications. Would you like to leave us with any closing remarks or final thoughts about rituximab? Um, I think our experience with rituximab over the last uh, decade has been it's, it's a fantastic drug. It's a highly effective drug. And now it's becoming cheaper. Um, it's almost like a, a, a medical drug in many ways. My worry is that um, the drug will become less and less frequently used. Um, and this is primarily because we do not have phase three data for a, a variety of autoimmune conditions. We have newer drugs with phase three data and evidence-based wise, they are one rung higher. And like many other effective drugs, I, I worry that in a decade's time, rituximab would be far from our uh, memories. Perhaps there's an opportunity for us in the UK, um, where we have state-funded healthcare, to utilize resources uh, wisely, uh, to perhaps conduct uh, such studies that will allow us to use it um, at, at the top level, at the, the highest evidence of level of data. Um, and funding for this, um, of course, from routine bodies, including uh, the Welcome and, uh, and the uh, NIHR, but also perhaps from NHS England, who stand to gain a lot. Even if one doesn't do the clinical trials, um, it is reasonable to use rituximab uh, as a, a first-line drug in a variety of conditions, including uh, MS, for example, where the efficacy has been shown. And I think further discussions um, are required, and I hope uh, this is a cue for uh, the authorities um, uh, to include clinicians and take it to the next level. Well, thank you very much indeed. That's been a very interesting review of what is obviously a very exciting uh, area of immunotherapy. And I'm very grateful for the time you've given practical neurology. Thank you very much for having us, Tom. Thank you. This podcast is related to an article by Dr. Jacob and Dr. Whittam, which is available on the Practical Neurology website now and will appear in the printed version in February. And I'm sure, like me, you will all find it extremely educational. Thank you.